Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to episode number 126 of the John Riley Project. Today is Tuesday, April 14th, 2020. Hey, welcome to the show, man. This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we're going to get into the U.S. Postal Service and the crisis that they're dealing with. Um, we may get into the rental crisis and the threats of a rent strike. Uh, hoping to have time to get into that today. Plus, I got a thoughts on a number of other issues. But um, yeah, this uh, podcast, our higher purpose, our sort of our aspiration is to really celebrate our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you know, what does that mean to me? It means, you know, being able to live your life on your own terms, to manage your own life, to have control over your life, to flourish in your life, to borrow a slogan from the U.S. Army, to be all that you can be. And you really only can live a life like that if you have an environment that allows you to choose, that gives you the liberty to decide how you want to live your life. And then ultimately, um, if you want to live a life you know, according to your own values, if you want to have a life where you can pursue your own happiness, we need that general framework of protecting individual rights, our inalienable rights. So a lot of what we talk about in this podcast is within that framework. We talk about politics, culture. Um, we get into a variety of like local issues here in the San Diego County area, national issues. We have some fun with electric vehicles and sports. But today I want to really get into the Postal Service um, as the primary topic. But, you know, before we jump into that, I just want to give you an update on my world. I, I don't know about you, but during this whole shelter in place, for me, it's like the movie Groundhog Day. Are you experiencing that at all? Well, you know, it, it seems like Tuesdays and Fridays and Sundays, they're all sort of the same. It's kind of a blur. Um, it's, it's an interesting concept. And so I was um, listening, I think it was the Rubin Report, Dave Rubin commenting about how Groundhog Day is Jordan Peterson's favorite movie. Um, because Oh, like his favorite comedy movie, I should say, um, because it's an exercise in that movie. If you remember Bill Murray and he's the weatherman and he's out in, what is it, Poxitawney, um, Pennsylvania, Poxitawney Phil, the groundhog. I, I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, but that was the movie where his days kept repeating over and over again. And, and you know, I remember when I watched the movie and it just seemed like it was – a comedy that the days would always repeat, but then he was always figuring out new strategies and new crazy things to do. And, and, and in many ways, it was all kind of a game to win the girl. Um, but when Jordan Peterson, I guess, looked at it from a different perspective is, is that it's an, it's an exercise of being better every day. It's an exercise of not comparing yourself to others, but just being better than the person you were yesterday. And I was like, wow, you know, that makes sense. Um, so I, I actually rewatched the movie um, on Amazon Prime, Groundhog Day, and I looked at it through that lens, the lens of be better than the person you were yesterday. And wow, the movie just kind of had a more a deeper meaning to it. So uh, I enjoyed that. So that was a lot of fun. Um, so I got a chance to do that. And then I don't know, what are you, you planning anything when the shelter in place is lifted? Uh, for me, I think the next thing I really want to do is finish my um, my visit to all 21 of the California missions. And I've got roughly half of them done. I think I've been to 10 or 11 of them, um, all the ones except one in Southern California. And I've been to 
I got to go to the ones all in northern. I've been to a few up there. Um, so looking forward to that. And that's kind of a, an excuse for a road trip, especially up to California Coastal um, 101, which is always a beautiful trip. So looking forward to doing that um, when this whole thing is lifted. But who knows when it's going to be lifted? That's kind of the, been the thing in the news right now. President Trump, you know, kind of coming off the handle yesterday at a press conference. And, you know, he's saying when somebody is president of the United States, his authority is total. And you're like, what in the hell is going on here? And he was just literally, you know, starting to come unglued because the press is just constantly poking him. And he is... um you know, he's under the gun. And so it, it's it's very interesting. And this whole notion of the president of the United States, his authority is total. Well, I'm sorry, but we've got three co-equal branches of government. We've got Congress. We've got the executive branch. We've got the Supreme Court. Um, your authority is not total. Um, this is Trump. You know, his background, he's a CEO. And yeah, in the business world, a CEO, his authority is total, but not in government. That's not how government works. Um but that's how he lives. And that kind of fuels the narcissism and it fuels um, a lot of the personality disorders of President Trump. I mean, just think like when he ran as president, he said, I alone can fix it. And now he's saying my authority is total. But then it was just like a week ago. He said, I take no responsibility. <laughs> so the guy is just all over the place. Um so he's something. Um, but it does really inv- address this question of, you know, how much power does the president have and how much does power does Trump think he has? Because the president can certainly declare a state of emergency. I would imagine the president can remove the state of emergency. But the president can't decide the economy is going to reopen. The president of the United States can't demand that businesses open up. Um, That's up to individual business owners. And then in some cases, there are local laws, you know, that here in San Diego County, you know, of course, a lot of the restaurants have been shut down and there's been other businesses have been shut down by government, which is a whole other topic. I won't go down that path. But um, it's the, the point is, is that. A lot of these ordinances about the economy are local, and they're also decisions that individual business owners have to make. It's not like the president can make that choice. Um, and I think Governor Newsom here in California is really trying to be proactive. I think one of the things he's doing is coordinating with Oregon and Washington, and I think we're going to be hearing more about this to have a, um, you know, kind of a a game plan for the Western United States. That sounds interesting. I'm certainly interested to hear what he has to say on it. But in the end, I think we have to depend on the scientists to tell us when it's safe um, or safer. And then people need to be able to make their own choices in terms of how we roll this out. It can't be by decree from above by President Trump. Um, But it does question the whole notion of what is the authority of the president and You know, we have the Constitution. There's a Tenth Amendment that says, you know, all duties, you know, or all um, powers given to the federal government are outlined in the Constitution. And anything beyond that scope is within the power of the states or of the people or of individuals. So when President Trump is saying that um, his authority is total, well, no, it's not. Your authority is within a certain scope and it's being it's bound to that scope. Now, of course. Presidents go over the line all the time. Um, And some of the executive orders that we're seeing, not just from President Trump, but we saw it from Obama and Bush and on back down the line, 
that's going beyond the scope of the president as well, because that's the president by decree ordering certain things, um, you know, essentially blending the legislative and executive branches and ruling like a king. Um, so that's why you see when Trump has these executive order signings, there are these flashy ceremonies um, when he does it because he gets to essentially um, like like a peacock, you know, kind of fluff his feathers up. So um, it, we don't see enough pushback on this particular point that, no, man, your your scope of power is limited. Now, we, we started to see a little bit of it yesterday from people in the press and maybe and even from some politicians that said your authority is not total. That's not true. That's an alternative fact. That's fake news. That's a lie. Um, so one of the people that a person I, I greatly respect that came forward and talked about this is Justin Amash. And I've talked about him in this podcast previously. He's one of the few guys in Washington, D.C. that I actually like. Um, Justin Amash, a former Republican, he's a congressman in the state of Michigan, I think out in western Michigan, like Grand Rapids, Rapids if I recall. Um, he was a Republican, one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus, um, but a true liberty-minded guy, a guy that very much is aligned with this whole notion of our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um he rightfully, in my opinion, said that President Trump had met the threshold for an impeachment trial or impeachment process within the House. Um, he did that, got a heap ton of of uh, crap thrown back at him for it. It was a very brave move as a Republican to say that. And then in, on February 4th of 2019, he declared his independence from the Republican Party. He's now running as an independent in his congressional race. Uh, but he came out with a tweet. And he said, um, Americans who believe in limited government deserve another option. And wow, that was just so refreshing to hear because um, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, you know, it's more and more power, more and more authority given to government to control our lives, to limit our liberty and to thwart our pursuit of happiness. And so he's he's standing up for limited government, which was so refreshing to hear. And and then immediately that restarts, rekindles this um, movement to um, encourage Justin Amash to run for president. And we began to see that when he first came out against Trump on the impeachment issue and when he declared his independence. Now, granted, he's trying to win his congressional race and, you know, that's a two year gig and he's going to be up for election in November. But the Libertarian Party is still sitting out there. The Libertarian Party um is probably the is definitely the strongest of all the third parties, um, and they actually have ballot access in all fifty states, um, which is saying something. That's really really hard to do to meet the um, requirements for signature gathering. And I think some of the work that Gary Johnson and Bill Well did in 2016, they got garnered enough votes to help allow for ballot access in 2020. That's a prize that I always thought was sitting out there for someone to claim. And the Libertarian Party, very disorganized. You know, there's some some sort of legit people in there and then some crazy people in there. And so I, I gave up on that party a long time ago. Um, but I keep an eye on it. And I've always wondered, would some other politician go in there and claim that prize? And many people have been thinking Justin Amash could be that guy. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, it'd be great if Justin Amash was that person, because then in November, I could actually vote for someone I want, someone I like, someone I really, really support, rather than going, you know, trying to vote 
against the uh, the greater of evils to vote against a bad candidate. I, I could feel good about voting for someone. Um, but is he going to run? You know, he said he's going to consider it, but he's kind of kept the door open for a long time. I don't think he's going to do it because we all know he's going to lose. I mean, th- the system is rigged for the Republicans and Democrats. And geez, I did a whole podcast on that topic alone. Um, he's not going to. Well, if he does run, it might be, you know, maybe increase his profile. But if he runs for president, he won't be back in Congress. That's for sure. And then what's his career going to be? So a very interesting to see what happens here. And then a lot of speculation. If he ran, would that help Trump or help Biden or hurt Trump or hurt Biden? And, you know, that can play both ways. I can see both scenarios there. But in the end, I, I'm, I'm very curious to see what he ends up doing. Uh, I think we're going to find out here very soon because the, the Libertarian Party actually has their convention in May and they don't have all kinds of primaries. They just do the vote at the convention. Um, and there's obviously a lot of gamesmanship and, um, you know, schmoozing and alignment that goes on for many months and, and beyond in, um, leading up to that convention. But again, who knows if they're going to have a convention because you can't have groups of 10 or more. They're going to do it all on Zoom. I have no idea. This is fascinating. I mean, what are the Republicans and Democrats going to do for their convention? Because I think those are in June and July or July and August, something like that. And I know the Olympics um, was moving one of the Republican or Democratic conventions to a different time. Now the Olympics aren't on, so I have no idea what's going to happen. The whole This whole shelter in place, this whole COVID-19 has just been the craziest thing. I mean, it's just changing everything. Um, but yeah, I would hope, and I'm kind of going to shift back to this topic. I hope you're taking advantage of this time. I mean, What are we in, like the fourth week of this shutdown? So are you building your own skills? Are you investing in yourself? Because this is a great time to do it. If you normally work in the office, now you're working from home, you have a lot more flexibility in in terms of how you plan your day. You don't have a commute. Um, You can work on other things at the same time, Um, you know, so – That flexibility, that work-life balance opens up opportunities to learn how to, you know, maybe transition to a new career, start a new business, maybe commit to a new exercise program, maybe, um, you know, read certain books. And it's a great opportunity to become better. So I hope you're taking advantage of this time. I'm definitely working hard through this. I'm I'm working on building an e-commerce infrastructure to help monetize this podcast, which I hope to share in the you know coming months. Um, uh, I I know that um, for me personally, I'm trying to get out and be a lot more active. I've been going for a lot more walks um, during the day, which has been fantastic. I've been hiking up some of these hills here in Poway, and that's been wonderful. Trying to do more of that. So I hope you're taking advantage of this opportunity because, man, when you're in the rat race and you're running, you know, every day, nine to five, commute, and, you know, sometimes you don't have time to really pause, gain perspective look inward and decide, are you doing what you want to do? Are you managing your life the way you really want to manage it? It's a great time to ask those hard questions. So if you're, if you're fortunate to still be working and you're working from home, you have that flexibility. If unfortunately you're not working, well, you have a lot more time on your hands. So this is a great time to kind of self-reflect, you know, while you're out there hustling and trying to make ends meet. 
it's also a great time to really ask yourself those hard questions. So I invite you to make sure that this shelter in place is not a pause button on your life, but it's a time to recharge, to reignite, to maybe change the direction of that battleship uh, from one point to another and move your life in a new direction. Okay. Um, Let's get into this whole postal service thing. And and the post office, man, they are in serious trouble. Um, it's a big financial crisis. It's in the news. And here's an article that was from Yahoo News. And it says, the coronavirus has dramatically worsened the situation for the U.S. Postal Service by causing a large decline in mail volume due to decreased commercial activity. Commercial activity. So that's direct mail advertising. The Postal Service saw 24.2% decline in delivered mail volume during the week of March 29th to April 4th. And delivered mail volume was down over 30% for the first three days of last week, according to presentation made by the Postal Service and distributed to members of Congress last week. The president, excuse me, the presentation, which was obtained by Yahoo News, predicted that there would be 35 billion, with a B, 35 billion fewer pieces of mail in the remainder of the fiscal year, which ends in September. The Postal Service is forecasting the declines to continue through the next fiscal year, leading to a $23 billion increase in net losses over the next 18 months. Wow. It's... um. The shit's hitting the fan with the Postal Service. And, you know, if you're paying attention, this has been going on for a long time. Now, just speaking for myself, in the 1990s, I was working for another company doing a lot of direct mail advertising. I started my own uh, business in the early 2000s, a marketing agency, largely doing a lot of direct mail advertising. But we've seen that steady slope going down as the Internet has become more powerful. We saw the decline go down further as the Great Recession punched all of us in the nose. And the, the volume at the Postal Service has been in decline for some time. And, yeah, sure, there might be some upgrades here and there. But, um, you know, this is no surprise. And now with the coronavirus hitting, well, yeah, the government's shutting down all these businesses. Um, Of course, um, commercial mail activity, direct mail advertising is going to go down. Heck, even some of the products that are distributed, you know, not everything is UPS or FedEx. Like when you order products uh, through e-commerce, some of it goes through the Postal Service. Well, yes, some of that's going to decline, too, because people are going to have less income to spend on these things. So, yeah, I would expect the volume is going to go down. And and then, you know, how often are people sending postcards? I mean, yeah, sure, that happens, but that's still kind of a romantic notion from decades ago. Um, personalized letters from decades ago, they're very rare. Um, so I think people still cling to that, but those have been greatly minimized through the advent of technology and not just email, but, you know, social media and FaceTime. And you don't need to do a postcard when you're halfway around the world, when you can take photographs and do a video and send it directly to your parents and grandparents. So the world has changed. And and even from an advertising perspective, a marketing perspective, so much has moved online because it's so much more powerful, so much more targeted, so much more accountable um, in proving a return on investment, and in many cases, a lot less expensive with much greater ROI. So it makes sense that this has been happening for some time, but now suddenly the post office is like, oh my God, we're about to run out of money in a few months. Well, come on. Um, you know, I um, 
have done a lot of business with the Postal Service. And a lot of times when we're doing these big mail drops, I've been you know, at the Karma Mountain Post Office here in San Diego County, which is the largest post office here. It's the essentially the, the headquarter post office for the county where all the mail goes there and then it's distributed to the neighborhood post offices, all the zip code post offices, where then the mailman gather that mail in and put, deliver it to the homes. Um, but when you go into the back there, the BMEU, the bulk mail entry unit, um, you just go back there. You could see over the last 10 to 15 years, the amount of mail going through that processing center has been way down over time. And I was just there like a month ago and it was like uh, crickets. It was like a ghost town. I mean, sure, there was some mail on the dock, but just so such a very little volume compared to what we saw 20 years ago. So. Of course, this makes sense that it's in decline. And then, you know, the post office, it's always interesting when you're working with postal employees. And, you know, I guess it's just like anywhere, right? There's some good ones and some bad ones, you know, and and I've known some really great people that work at the Postal Service, especially some of the people in the BMEU, a bulk mail entry unit. But, you know, there's always the employees out there that are kind of like employees at the DMV, right, where customers aren't there to, you know, fuel their business and to help them. And we want to serve the customer. But for some of these employees, the customer is sort of a nuisance. The customer is someone you got to deal with. And then there's a whole level of bureaucracy dealing with the post office. It's painful. Um, Now, I I do a lot of my, uh, I have a PO box for my business, but it's at the Postal Annex here in Poway, right next to the Target. And good old Dennis works there. Great guy. Love going in there. He's like the opposite of the stereotypical postal employee. He's just so personal, personable. And we talk sports. We have a lot of fun over there. Um, now, granted, times are different there, even at his facility, but he and his staff are doing a great job keeping things safe there. Um, I visit less frequently, but you know, I pay. You know, I buy stamps through through Postal Annex, and it's more expensive, but it saves me a trip to the post office. I'm doing business with someone I know, someone I like, and it's a place where I get my mail. And it's all good. So, um, it's it, the whole post office is just an interesting. Um, it's an interesting entity. Uh, now, let's look at the whole idea of you know postal rates and the post office is losing money and. You know, people are saying they would be making money if it wasn't for the fact of this this um, uh, pension and health care for retirees that's been put uh, put upon them. Well, first of all, let's just talk about the Postal Service for decades has generally been a break even enterprise. You know, some years they'll run a deficit and then they'll increase the price of postage for the first class stamps and then also postage for packages postage for bulk mail, for, you know, direct mail, et cetera. They'll increase the postage rate. And then they go into a period of running surpluses for a few years. And then over time, expenses rise, employee compensation goes up. There's, you know, cost of fuel for the trucks, everything else, costs go up. And then eventually they find themselves in a deficit again. And then they increase postage again. And it's this sort of cyclical thing where over a period of time, they have deficits, they have surpluses, but over a period of time, it's roughly balanced. It's roughly a break-even enterprise. And that's the way it's always been until the middle 2000s. And some people have said, well, that's when they were, they, they had to, um, they had to deal with the, um, 
the pensions, the, the health care costs of their retirees, and they had to pay that up front in advance. And that's true. That was put upon them. But at the same time, there, there's been a huge decline in volume. So, you know, it's been since the mid-2000s. I think they've now are going on 13 consecutive years of losses. And, and then you'll hear people say, well, the Postal Service doesn't use any taxpayer dollars at all and because they still think of it in that old framework of a break-even enterprise. But if you've gone 13 consecutive years with a deficit, well, how are they making up that deficit? Well, obviously, the federal government is either subsidizing them from their annual operating budget or it's being subsidized with debt. And in either case, that's being thrust upon taxpayers to pay for. Um, so when people say the Postal Service doesn't get funded by taxpayers, that's incorrect. Uh, because of this deficit spending, it has to be funded by taxpayers. Um, but it's it's interesting when you think about, like I remember when I was a kid, I remember the price of postage was 10 cents for a stamp. Maybe some of you, you might remember when it was single digits. And now what is it? It's like 50 cents or so. And you think about it, that's remarkable that they can mail a letter across country for 50 cents. I mean, it's amazing, really. And I wonder, I mean, compare that what it would cost to send by FedEx or UPS. Now, granted, the rules are different. For FedEx, UPS to send a letter, it has to be classified as urgent overnight. They can't mail like traditional mail. Um, and, and that's some of the monopoly that the Postal Service has for regular traditional letter mail, non-urgent mail. They have a monopoly. They also, by the way, have a monopoly on the mailbox. Nobody else can touch that mailbox. Even though you privately own it as a homeowner, you bought the mailbox at your local hardware store. You installed the mailbox. No one is allowed to use it. Not even a neighbor to put like a flyer or some information in your post office. That's considered against the law. So the Postal Service has a monopoly on the mailbox too. Um, but uh, – yeah, it's, it is amazing how inexpensive postage is. And then you think, well, they're going through this crisis. Well, geez, let's, let's take a look at the postage rates and figure out how they can balance the budget. But, you know, going back to the pension problem and it's pension and health care for, for um, their retirees. And the common complaint is, well, that's the Republicans and George Bush signed that. And they're trying to privatize the post office. They want the post office to fail. And they put this burden on the post office to pre-fund these pensions. Well, I'm thinking to myself, well, look at the pension crisis with state and local government here in California. It's the opposite. It hasn't been pre-funded. They have made overly generous promises with pensions for um, government workers like school district workers, city employees, state work, uh, state of California workers in order for politicians to win those key endorsements from teachers unions, from, um, uh, you know, prison worker unions, et cetera. Um, they make these overly generous promises on pensions um, and then they, in turn, those endorsements get those politicians elected and that quid pro quo cycle, they end up giving these overly generous promises that are not built on a real sound financial model. They're, they're built on overly optimistic returns on the investment accounts for those pensions. And so this, that's why we had this broadening pension crisis in California, these huge unfunded liabilities that are putting a huge squeeze 
on city government, state and local governments, school districts. And so these local entities are now having to pay more from their operating budget to make up these gaps in the pension crisis. And that's putting a squeeze on other government services. It's calling for tax increases and the like. We've seen that at Poway Unified. It's a serious problem there. Um, At the city of Poway, they're trying to address it. They're trying to set money aside for it and then actually invest it on their own to get a little bit more leverage. Um, But different local entities are struggling with how to handle this pension crisis. And I look at the post office and they're front loading it, thinking, well, geez, maybe they're the ones that are doing it the right way. Because the way that it's being managed now is is ridiculous. It's it's not working, and so the complaint is is when people comment about how the postal service has this huge burden that no other government agency has. Well, yeah, that's the problem. Maybe these other government agencies should be front loading those pensions so it doesn't put as much of a burden on taxpayers because that could blow up in their face um, down the road um, as the retirees, you know, as they get older and our lifespans are increasing and healthcare costs are going up. Um, this is a huge nut. And you kind of wonder how affordable that particular pensions are for these companies or for these government agencies. In fact, that's why a lot of private companies have moved away from pensions, gone to 401ks, and in many cases, 401ks with a company match, because the whole notion of a pension is guaranteed no matter what happens in the stock market. So when you know the stock market now takes a big dump, well, those government employees are still getting paid a guaranteed amount. So who makes up the difference? Like you and I do through our taxes. Um, so it, it is interesting when they say that this burden is on the Postal Service that no other government entity has. Well, maybe the Postal Service has it right. Um, so this now gets into the whole notion of will the Postal Service be privatized? And I, I, now in, in my opinion – um, I often wonder why the federal government is, is has a postal service in the first place. Now, granted, you know, back in the to- beginning of our country, Benjamin Franklin, you know, wanted to start the post office, and and the the idea of a postal service made a great deal of sense then, and there were no other organizations that could really have pulled it off. But if the if the role of government, as defined in the Declaration of Independence, is to secure our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then how is a postal service consistent with that? So when people say the post office should be privatized and and some people are saying, oh my God, you know, their hair on fire, don't privatize the post office. Well, I, I'm generally, it's not like priority number, you know, in my top 10, for sure. That's that's for sure. I mean, as long as the Postal Service exists and it's a break-even enterprise, then I'm okay with it. You know, it's just, it's just out there. It doesn't cause any harm. People use it, you know, and then fine. But when it's losing money like this, well, now we got a serious issue to address. And then it really brings into question, is it within the scope of the role of government? Now, granted in the Constitution, it does say that the um, Congress shall have the power to establish post offices and post roads. They have the power to do it, but it doesn't mean that they're constantly to, constitutionally required to have a postal service. So could it be privatized? I think it could. I mean, I think portions of it certainly could, um, at least reformed so it's, it's managed. But um, 
it is interesting how we see conservatives, Trump people generally like, yeah, we need to privatize the post office. And then you see progressives, you know, liberals that want to protect the post office, which is sort of the opposite. Usually conservatives are the ones that long for the days of old, long for the way things used to be, long for that romantic period in American history when things were right. And that's when the post office and, you know, your friendly mailman is it's it's all that Norman Rockwell kind of way of looking at America. And it's the conservatives um, that you would think would be the ones that would be longing for that. But instead, it's the progressives. So the, the progressives who you think would be thinking in terms of progress, moving forward, adapting new technology, looking to the future, looking to a new generation. You would think the progressives would be the ones that would be like saying, yeah, you know, the post office is all right, but, you know, it's not really aligned with the needs of the 21st century. Maybe some of it could be privatized. Maybe some of it could be optimized. Maybe we can change the way the Postal Service works. You know, maybe we don't need to deliver six days a week. Maybe we can we can talk about reforming it. But usually the progressives are the ones that long for the postcard, you know, from, you know, Hawaii, <laughs> you know, that 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 romantic period of what the Postal Service represents. So it seems like the two the two political philosophies have flip flopped on this sort of thing. They're representing the opposite of what you would expect. Now, in my opinion, they will never privatize the post office. That will never happen. Now, granted, they might take a tiny part of it and privatize it. They might reform it, but there's no way they're going to privatize it. I mean, it's just not going to happen. There's just too much involved with that. There are too many tentacles to that. And I see this very similar to the chicken little screeching um, where you hear people say, ah, the Republicans want to shut down the post office. Ah, the Republicans want to shut down Social Security. Ah, the Republicans want to abolish Medicare. And we hear that Every, like every election cycle, we hear that with Social Security. We no, mostly hear it with Medicare, too. And then um, with the post office, we're starting to hear that as well. But you know what? Look at history. History is, is that the Republicans continue Social Security every year. They expand Social Security. The Republicans expanded Medicare. They George Bush added Medicare Part D, which is the whole prescription drugs model, which, yeah, we can talk about how that's cronyism and a giveaway to big pharma, but it's still an expansion of Medicare. Even Paul Ryan, when he was talking about reforming Medicare, um, some say to a voucher program, it was still spending more money on Medicare, an expansion of Medicare. It wasn't an abolishment of Medicare. And then now we're talking about people screeching more of the chicken little. The Republicans want to privatize the post office. I just don't see it happening. Not at all. So I think what's going to happen here is I think they're going to what, what I think should happen is just raise prices. You know, just make the people that use the post office be the ones that pay for the post office, just like any other organization. Like my business, I don't expect you to pay for my business if you're not utilizing my services. So the post office has always been a break-even enterprise until the last 15 years, well, last 13 years. Well, just get it back to a break-even enterprise where the way it used to be, and then it's fine. Then it can kind of exist out there and service the people that want to use it, and it doesn't create a burden on everyone else. Um, so 
if they want to front load or if that that front loading of pensions and healthcare requirements is on them, which I don't think is a bad thing, as I've explained. I think the current pension management of government officials is terrible. This was the one that looked like, geez, they're finally getting that one right. Um, then just front load it. So the price to mail a letter is 50 cents to go across the United States, which is just amazing to think about that. Well, I mean, you got to People have to pick it up. It goes through the mail processing. It goes on trucks or on airplanes. And then it eventually gets to another destination and it's circulated through a distribution system. It works its way from post office to post office into trucks and into a local post office, into a mail carrier's bag who then delivers it by hand into a, po- uh, into a mailbox. And it's only 50 cents. It's like, oh, my God. Um, well, what if a first class postage is now suddenly 75 cents or maybe a dollar? I mean – would that completely destroy people's personal budgets? Probably not. Um, would that have – if the price of direct mail advertising went up significantly, would that have an impact on those businesses? Um, yeah, it would. No, that's no doubt about that. Um, but in the end, don't we just want the Postal Service to be break-even? Just let the customers pay for it rather than subsidizing it. I mean, we're getting all these subsidies, this cronyism. We're seeing subsidies of businesses, which is wrong. You know, all these bailouts. And it's like everyone's in line for a bailout. I mean, at what point do we say no? At what point do we say, like, enough of this? You know, live on your own revenue stream. And and I'm not just saying that for the post office. I'm saying it about this whole stimulus bill that's going on as well. I believe the same thing. They should just live within their own means. So, you know, I think in the end, I think we're going to see some reform, uh, but nothing significant. You know, there might be a few tweaks. President Trump will kick the can down the road. He probably doesn't want to be the one that's going to blow up the post office because it's probably not a huge priority for him. So, um, but, you know, in the end, what does this all mean for you? All right. Well, if you use the Postal Service, you know, okay, then this may have an impact on you. I think most of us that use the Postal Service mostly use it because we're receiving rather than delivering, although many of us use it to deliver, you know, pay bills and all sorts of things. But in the end, pay attention to the trends. And this is where I'm going to say, look at your career. You see these Postal Service workers and a lot of this, I think the reason that progressives are very much wanting to protect the Postal Service is also to protect those workers um, and protect those union jobs. Well, if you're in a job that is – you see the writing on the wall. You see a decline in business. You see a decline in people buying your product or your service. You can't just sit there and watch it happen and watch it unfold. You've got to be able to evolve with the times. And so I'm not just saying this to postal workers. I'm saying this to everyone. Look at this as an example. Look at this as an example of a business that – is really from a, a business, I'm say business, an enterprise would be a better word, an enterprise that really has gone through a massive shift over the past 20 years, an industry or a enterprise that needs to evolve with the times. We all need to evolve. We can't sit idle. Now, I'll give Bernie Sanders some credit. He wanted to you know, take a look at the Postal Service and change some of the services they offered. Okay, hey, that's that's refreshing. I don't necessarily agree with some of his ideas, but I love the fact that he's looking for ways to change the model, to evolve with the times. We need to do that not by looking at the post office. We need to look at that inwardly, looking at from our career perspective. Are we in a situation where we can see 
the writing on the wall. We've got to get out in front. We've got to stay in front of the curve. And I think this postal situation can give us a model that we can look to and ask ourselves that same question. Are the jobs and careers that we are pursuing, are they from a bygone previous era? And am I at risk? Because of that. Um, And if you think you are, now is the time. It's just like I said in the beginning. Now is the time to invest in yourself. Now is the time to learn new skills. Now is the time to really, like I said, be all that you can be. So, um, yeah, so those are just general thoughts on the Postal Service. Um, Got a couple more things I want to touch on. I'm not sure if we're going to have time to go through. Well, we might be able to get into the rental thing. But the first thing I want to say is I just set up a complaint uh, page on my website. So if you ever got a complaint, if you don't like what I'm saying, if you are disagreeing with what I'm doing, um, go to my website. Go to johnreillyproject.com slash complaints. And there you can fill out a form. Tell me what your problem is with what we're talking about here. And I may very well read it in one of my future podcasts. So if you got a complaint, we'd love to hear it. Bring it on. Let us know um, and and share that with us. If you think what we're doing is not right, if you have a disagreement, let me know. Go to johnreillyproject.com slash complaints. Okay. Hey, a big shout out to our sponsor, PowayStore.com. Poway Store, this... um, Great, you know, online e-commerce shop. And one of the things they just built, which is great, are these neck gaiters. And they're like these, um, you know, it's like a fabric that you can pull, you wrap around your neck that keeps your neck warm, like if you're out for a hike in the morning. But you can also pull it up over your face and over your nose. And it can serve as a protective mask during this COVID-19 situation. And PowayStore.com has some of those. One with a picture of Lake Poway on it, another one with a picture of Iron Mountain on it. They've also got Poway shirts and sweatshirts and all kinds of great things at PowayStore.com. Um, go check them out. They've got stickers. They've got uh, coffee mugs, um, all kinds of neat things at PowayStore.com, celebrating the city in the country. You can also go on their website and sign up to get on their mailing list at PowayStore.com. Okay. Um, let's take a look. I think we can get through this rent strike issue um, here pretty quick. And this is a remarkable thing because we're hearing about um, we're hearing about, you know, people are, are going to be unable to pay their mortgages. People are going to be unable to pay their rents. And they already said that a third of the people have not paid their rent by April 5th so far. And and it's possible that we're going to see a very large percentage, far higher than normal, that aren't going to be paying their rent. And this is, should be no surprise. I mean, the, the fallout from this crisis is going to be huge. People living paycheck to paycheck is a real, real deal. And now suddenly, you know, we had what, like 16 million people go on unemployment in the last three weeks. That's like 10% of the workforce. Um, it's just huge. So, um, yeah, we're going to see uh, unemployment rates going up. People are going to be struggling especially people that live paycheck to paycheck, and a lot of people do. And we're already starting to see huge food lines. I mean, you've seen on the news these huge lines of cars um, going to these food banks to get food. Now, granted, they're getting it for free, which is wonderful, but these people are obviously not working because they have time to go wait in that line, and some of those lines are just insane. Um, So these decisions that have happened, granted, the shutdown of the economy that the government has enacted – Understood. It's there to protect us, to flatten the curve, 
to control the COVID-19 situation. And in many parts of the country, we've been having some, you know, relative success. Obviously, other parts of the country have been slow to react and they're having more problems. But this obviously has created a huge problem in the economy with people being laid off. And now that's why all the bailouts and everything else, um, it's having massive cascading impact. Excuse me. So I've seen some chatter online from people that are renters and they're saying, well, landlords are getting a break, you know, with this whole bailout. bailout. Why don't I get a break? Well, the way that I understand it with landlords is that if they are in, um, and this is for anybody that has a mortgage, whether you're a landlord or you just happen to be a homeowner, if you're in a situation where you can't make your mortgage payment, you number one, have to work out a deal with your lender. You can't just decide not to pay. Um, and then the, my understanding is, is that the government has worked out a, a program or, or maybe they've given an edict. I'm not sure how, but basically there's two months that can be deferred. So two months of payment on principal just gets tacked on to the very end of that mortgage. So if it's a 30-year mortgage, well, then it becomes a 30-year plus two-month mortgage. But still the landlord or the property owner still has to pay the interest on the loan. That doesn't go away. Um, but some renters are saying, well, if if they're getting a break, why can't I get a break? And then there's been talking you know, about maybe a rent holiday. Um, but it's amazing how this has such a huge cascading effect where, and you can't really give one group a break, one group a holiday without understanding that that's going to impact the, a chain reaction down the line. So what's now you were starting to see is, is this notion of like anti-landlord sentiment that I've been seeing creeping up on Facebook in a few isolated cases. And it's interesting because there was one news story that came out where a landlord had sent an email to all of his tenants in an apartment complex, basically saying, you better pay your rent. Your rent is still due. And obviously came off as very tone deaf, uh, according to the situation you know, that's at hand. And that landlord was criticized, rightfully so. Um, but you're seeing some people that feel that this is now an opportunity because of this crisis to really stick it to the landlord, to really, you know, get after it. And because now there's no threat of eviction, the eviction notices have been lifted for is either two or three months. So if a person doesn't pay their rent, normally after a period of time, they can be removed, which makes sense. But now there's no threat of being removed. So some are saying, well, this is a great opportunity just not to pay because I don't suffer any uh, repercussions if I don't pay, at least for a period of time. So it's an interesting angle. And and then I, I saw there was one person in particular on Facebook who was going on and on about how, well, you know what, a landlord, come on, that's not really a job, is it? That's not a job, you know? So, um, and, and, and the argument was, well, it's not like, you know, they're going to work and working nine to five and how much labor are they exerting? And, and besides a landlord, it's just an investment, right? It's just an investment, you know, and some investments go up, some investments go down. Right now, things are going down. So if you don't get paid rent, well, that's just all part of the investment going down. And so some people are seeing this as sort of a moral rationalization to not pay, which is amazing. So people are, you know, in their minds kind of cooking up these schemes. And 
Now, first of all, a landlord is that's a job. I mean, it's not a job like you know a waitress or a factory line worker, but it's still a job. I mean, you still have to, um, you know have the property maintained. Um, you still have to pay all the bills for the property. You still have to advertise and get new tenants. When tenants come in, you still have to do all of that. And granted, yeah, you're going to outsource some of that work to contractors, to plumbers, to roofers, but still, it's a job. It's a burden. Um, and you carry on the responsibility of always paying that mortgage, even if you don't have renters in that place. I mean, we used to be renters. We used to have a rental property in Rancho Bernardo for about 15 years. And it got to a point where it was just too much of a hassle, you know, too much headache, too much essentially work to deal with it, and then too much of a risk. Um, because if, you know, like if renters, if I went three months, four months without a renter, then suddenly like, oh my God, that's a big nut you got to cover. We eventually stopped doing it. But um, I have I have a family member who owns about eight or nine rental homes up in the Bay Area. That's a job. I mean, granted, it's not a nine to five job, but he's constantly out there um, working with his tenants, working with contractors at the site, uh, managing those properties. And then I have a friend of mine who um, her family owns essentially like an apartment, um, not a building, but more of a campus. Um, and they've got a whole staff of people that in the business office that manage all of that property. And you know, there's like employees for this company that are involved with the whole process. So it's definitely, landlord is definitely a job. But I think some people are trying to diminish um, the role of the landlord. And it's funny, for some people, the landlord has always been the bane of some people's existence, always been the devil, where I've often thought, well, geez, the landlord's providing a place for this person to live, is providing a roof over their head. I mean, and then there's payment in exchange for that. So what's the problem? Um, but it's for some people, man, just the hatred of landlords is unbelievable. Now, some landlords are being are proactive. And here's a guy, Clay Grubb, the CEO of Grubb Properties, a multifamily housing developer based in Charlotte, North Carolina, offered a 10% discount to renters who paid by April 1st. And nearly 70% of his renters took advantage of this the discount, saving them nearly $400,000 in rent altogether. We decided to provide a new program for the remaining 30% of the residents, said Grubb. If they paid their April rent in a timely manner, which could mean through a payment program, they would get a 10% credit toward their May rent. And as of April 8th, Grubb collected April rents from 94% of his residents. He also relaxed the requirements for tenants who want to terminate a lease, dropping a 30-day notification and two-month rent requirement to just 15 days and one month's rent. And so far, 22 tenants, less than 1% of his total, took advantage of that. And as Grubb highlighted, there's an importance of compassion when it comes to the relationship that landlords have with their residents and ways landlords can help in this crisis. And I'm like, hey, how refreshing. Now, so there's a landlord that's working with his tenants that's not tone deaf like the other one I mentioned, but understands the crisis, understands what they're going through, and then gives them an incentive to pay early or to pay on time and get a discount. So a win-win, which is terrific. And, you know, like the way I see it, like I said earlier, like rent, I see it, it's a trade. Rent, rent is a trade. It's, it's, you know, each side has responsibilities. One side has to pay the rent. The other side has to provide a safe place and have it maintained and, you know, service it when it needs servicing. And so there's, each side has a responsibility um, to serve the other. There is a win-win outcome of that. Um, and that's why I've often said, like, 
the anger towards landlords, I just never really, really understood. Um, but there are some people now, like I say, that want to strike. They, they were saying, we've had it with these landlords. We want to not pay. But you know what? They want to strike, but they still want to live in the place where they are. They still want the benefit of living under the roof of the landlord, and but just not pay. And to me, that's like crazy. That's like a win-lose. That's a case where the renter is winning because they're getting a place to stay. They get a roof over their head and they're not paying at all. And the landlord is – yeah, the landlord is getting nothing. Um, normally with strikes, like if workers don't work – well, then it becomes a game of chicken, right? Where who's going to blink first? Are the workers going to blink to go back on the job? Is the employer going to blink to give the workers better working conditions, more pay, better benefits, whatever the negotiation is? Who's going to blink first? But in this case of a renter strike, and granted, it's only a small number of people that are talking about this, but it's it's there's chatter about it. A renter strike while you're still living in the place? Come on. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's just wrong. So- now, granted, I know times are tough. They are. I get it. Um, but if you are in a situation where paying the rent is difficult, you got to talk to your landlord. Work something out with the landlord. I mean, the landlord doesn't want vacancies. The landlord doesn't want total disruption. The landlord's going to likely going to want to work with you. So work with them. Work out a plan. If you are, if you have a mortgage and you're going through trouble, same thing. Contact your lender. Work something out. People are going to be a lot more amenable, a lot more agreeable because consider the person on the other side of the fence. Is it in their best interest to work something out with you or to have you leave? Most likely it's in their best interest to work something out. So keep that in mind. So, um, yeah, reach a new win-win outcome. Oh, good. I'm glad we got that in because I, I, I wanted to talk about the rent situation because um, – it's important and people are struggling. It's tough out there. And getting a $1,200 payment, which I think are fine. Those checks are finally starting to go out. I mean, that's not going to cover rent in California. I mean, that's like just a drop in the bucket. Um, people are going to struggle with this and there's going to be disruption. But I hope people can find a way. Um, and if you're having trouble, you just renegotiate. Come forward and work something out. And I think when you proactively come forward, before it turns into a crisis, before you're in arrears, you're always going to be welcomed much more positively. I remember uh, a story as a, um, a guy that owns a, a, a chain of retail stores here in San Diego. And um, I remember this was back in the 90s. And his I did a lot of um, advertising work for him. And they were going through an ownership change. And there was huge disruption financially in their company. And he told me, he says, I can't pay the bills. I want to work with you. And I was like, right on. And so I connected him with our accounting department and they worked out a deal and they made it work. And it was wonderful. Um, the company took care of, the, of my client. My client took care of my company and it all worked. So, yeah, in these cases where there's challenges, especially now where people are aware that the problems are real, it's the time just to work things out. Um, and if you can't work it out, well, then people need to find another way. And that's going to be hard. Um, but, um, yeah. Don't uh, don't make threats to, to, to partners that are providing services to you. Um, I don't think that's the right thing to do. Okay. Um, hey, if you want to continue the conversation, 
Um, join us on social media. You can go to the, my Facebook page, John Riley Project. Um, loving uh, the, the the viewership we're getting on YouTube. We're getting a lot more subscribers on YouTube. Thank you for all of you that are that are participating there and that are um, answering or asking questions and entering dialogue. Love that. Um, so reach out to me. Um, like I said, if you've got a problem, you got a complaint, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com slash complaints and let me have it. If you have a problem with what I'm talking about, I may even read your complaint um, during one of my next podcasts. Um, and hey, hey, as long as you're out there, johnreillyproject.com slash subscribe, get on our mailing list. Um, always like to leave this with a closing quote, and I'm going to quote Bernie Sanders. And I talked about him earlier in the podcast. He wanted to embrace the evolution of the Postal Service, which I give him great credit for. And he says, as a result of the digital age, and the decline of first-class mail, there is no question that the Postal Service must change and develop a new business model. Right on, Bernie. Now, Bernie, of course, wants to do banking, and he's got a bunch of other ideas, but that's what a progressive should be doing, is thinking about how to move forward rather than trying to protect that romantic era of the Norman Rockwell mailman or the the postcard from your cousin on vacation. (laughs) So... um, Love to see progress from progressives because that's what they should be representing. So anyways, thanks for joining me on the John Raleigh Project. This is episode number 126. Have a great day out there, friends. Uh, Be safe and be well um, during this crisis. Make good choices and we'll catch you later. Thanks, friends. Bye-bye.